what we do here is go back, 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 back. Welcome, welcome to the Hustle Sold Separately. We are a weekly podcast dedicated to doers, creators, hustlers, entrepreneurs, innovators, people in and around the world that are very unique. They're in their vibe. They're on their thing. They're doing things differently. They're outside the box. They're in mode. All of you guys know what it's like to just be different. And I understand it. My guests understand it. My guests are different. That's why we have them come on each week. We talk about what's going on in the mix of creating. And you guys always hear me say, I don't like to glamorize or glorify end success there is no ending and success is a different uh concept for each person and it's the journey where everything is being made right and uh, today's guest will be no different uh and actually a very exciting person that i really admire just from our previous conversations uh so for many of you guys that have been tuned in for a while thank you so much for all the ratings the reviews the the just everything it really means a lot for those of you that are a little bit newer i'm matt goddessman uh, founder and host of The Hustle Sold Separately. You guys can uh, find me on Instagram at Matt Goddessman or at HDF Magazine if you want to jump in the conversation on entrepreneurship, creativity, culture, at Hustle Sold Separately if you want to follow the show. And uh, just really appreciate each and every one of you. You guys know I, I actually reply to every one of your comments and texts. And so we're going to jump right into uh, this week's show. Uh, very, very, very uh, happy and fortunate to have this guy on. Uh, as you know, we've had, like I mentioned, we've had some incredible conversations, and we're going to talk a lot about serving. Um, is you know, serving others is also like saving others. Is also like serving ourselves and saving ourselves. When we serve our wor- ourselves and the world at large, everything gets better. Especially when we're coming from some pretty dark messed up places at times. Everybody can go through it. No matter who's listening, it happens. And I, and I like that people know that they're not alone because I think often people forget that and they think like, oh, nobody goes through what I go through. No, believe me, mostly everybody goes through what you go through at different phases and at different, uh, you know, levels, right? Different, you know, different times. So uh, this week I've got Zach Scow on. Uh, he's the founder of Marley's Mutts and Positive Change and, uh, you know, born and raised in Hermosa Beach, California. Uh, as a kid, he aspired to become a, a fighter pilot, uh, but would later find his passion in providing second chances for pets and people. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, with his organizations. In 2008, he was diagnosed with stage four acute alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver and given less than 90 days to live. We're going to talk about that. Uh, his journey is incredible, and it's and it, you know it had its rough patches, and he's going to talk about what happened during that. Uh, he was admitted to Comprehensive Transplant Center at Cedars-Sinai, uh, where he's still a patient. And it's out of this desperate situation that Marley's Mutt's dog rescue was formed. He's going to talk a little bit about how that came about. Um, he found a way to save his own life by saving the lives of others as well. And Marley's Mutt's uh, and Kids has rescued over 6,000 dogs, cats, horses, and pigs in the last 11 years. And has created numerous progressive programs, including Barks and Books, Miracle Mutt's, Positive Change, uh, which is uh, an inmate canine rehabilitation program spreading throughout the California penal system and hopefully the world as he continues to expand it. Mission very simply, simple. Marley's Mutts is a nonprofit organization that rescues, rehabilitates, trains, and rehomes death row dogs from Kearns County uh, high-kill animal shelters. In addition, they utilize the rescued dogs to transform people's lives. And through the power of human-canine bonds, they empower dogs and people to live healthy, happy, and productive lives. He's also married to the woman of his dreams, which I thought was pretty cool uh, that he noted that, uh, Heather Scow. 
and they have a 17 month year old daughter uh, together as well as five dogs one cat uh, and a pig and three horses <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> zach i love i love that you have all that info thank you man I, i'm glad we're getting to do you know this conver- uh, another conversation again and uh we, you know you and i we we geek out and we go all in and, and we get very vulnerable too and it the space yeah, is very very vulnerable so especially a lot of the men that are listening to us we don't hold back zach's certainly not going to hold back um welcome to the show i appreciate having you on man thank you brother i gotta send you a different bio that just says something like i'm a drunk with a dream who saves dogs and works in prisons <laughs> well there, there you go everybody there you go that's the new bio so he just did yeah. it right now um uh, perfect <laughs> what you know um you know i mentioned at the top of the bio about um you know you were diagnosed with stage four acute alcoholic cirrhosis and uh mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had mentioned, I, I know the story. I want you to tell the rest of the world because, you know, it was a scary time and it was a very dark time at, at, at that, too. Um, so go as far back as you want, you know, and, and tell the story about kind of how we got to Marley's Mutts. And then, you know, yeah. and along the way, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about serving and saving. Sure. <clears throat> well, I mean, it's a long story. You know, I have kind of a, I don't want to say it's a typical alcoholic story, but, you know, started out for as long as I can remember. I wanted to drink and I couldn't wait to be of age where I could drink, you know, um, my family along with, I think most family, a lot of families in America, alcohol is prioritized, um, as something that's very, very necessary, certainly in any sort of social environment. So, um, you know, we started sneaking, sneaking my first drinks at 10, 11, you know, I helped my mom host a bunch of parties when we were kids and my mom's house was kind of the place to be. Um, I come from a broken home, so I grew up in Hermosa with my mom, spent a lot of time with my dad too, but he lived in a different area. So, um, you know, very, very typical story. Just, uh, I never felt, I've never felt comfortable in my own skin. I've never been able to really look in the mirror and go, look at that stud. You know, I don't really see what, what, what everybody else sees. Um, and I've kind of had a, just an underlying anxiety kind of that runs, runs through my body that you know, I've had to adjust to and just get comfortable with and, and also try to try to love a little bit because that anxiety and that, that emotional sensitivity is just part of who I am and part of what makes me who I am. But, um, you know, back then I was certainly very ashamed of it and didn't know how to navigate. Um, I went through some, some sexual trauma as a kid, you know, right at my most kind of formative stages going into puberty, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, and um, not understanding what that meant, what going through that, you know, sexual abuse meant. Um, it was by, it was at that, it was an interaction that happened with a woman, you know, so it was um, an, a, obviously an adult woman. And uh, it was a, something that happened consistently throughout my childhood um, for those those years and something that confused me very much. So I think if I hadn't have become if I hadn't have become an alcoholic, that experience definitely pushed me into alcoholism because I when you start you know, 12, 13 years old, you start to go through puberty, um, you start to interact with women. And I was terrified of women, not, not typically nervous of women. I was terrified, you know, and I would have these, um, these real like meltdowns where I, I couldn't, the anxiety was so much and the, the, the nerves were, were so raw that I couldn't, couldn't be around women in any sort of remote intimate situation. And the minute things started to get anywhere were in, in the ballpark of intimate, I would have a breakdown and I, I didn't know what was wrong with me, but the short term solution I found was alcohol. You know, alcohol really helped me to get through some of the experiences with women at a young age. Um, and, and then it wasn't until I got sober that I really, really connected that trauma as a child, um, to, 
uh, and really was able to work it out and, and go through it and start to become, you know, comfortable with who I am as a, as a, like a sexual being, you know, I was so repressed for so long out of this anxiety, out of this fear, out of this trauma, my body, my brain, everything would, would shoot me back into that experience. So I didn't know that, but every time I was in an intimate situation, unless I was well fucked up, you know, I would panic. I mean, utter and complete panic, nothing that was manageable, you know, and I try to run away from the situation. I know now that I ran away from that situation because of the trauma that had occurred when I was a kid. So you know, the rest of it is, um, again, it's kind of typical. I, I became an every everyday drinker at 17. So I drank, you know, every night, um, going through college and when I was younger and I uh, got into selling drugs and doing drugs and obviously progressed from marijuana and pills into things that were more, um, more dangerous cocaine, you know, nothing crazy with heroin, but, um, uh, had my experiences with heroin too, with, with, with everything, with methamphetamine, with crack, with, with all of it. Um, yeah. And, and I, my entire life was dedicated to alcohol and drugs. You know, the only way I could feel comfortable at all to face any portion of the day is if I was, you know, properly lubricated I and mean, I could not face the day just as myself. And, um, it became increasingly more difficult to do that as the years went on. And, uh, you know, finally in 2008, you know, at that time I was drinking 24 hours a day. So for that last five or six years, I, I consumed alcohol all day long. You know, I would wake up, chug a solo cup of, of wine or vodka or what, anything I could get my hands on just to be normal, just to, to not be going through emotional or physical withdrawals. Um, and, and when that, I mean, I remember one time in 2003, after I'd healed from a car accident, I broke my chest and my shoulder in a rollover car accident. I was obviously intoxicated. And, um, after I'd healed from that, I told myself, I'm going to go one day without drinking. And I'm going to, I got a, you know, a bunch of weed and got a few pills and I'm going to guide myself through this detox period. Right. And boy, was I in for a rude, <laughs> rude experience. That was the worst. I mean, I went into physical withdrawals so early in the morning, like in the middle of the night, you know, and as soon as the, the liquor store opened, I had to go down and get alcohol just to prevent me from, from, from going through really traumatic withdrawals. Uh, and that day I kind of just committed to alcoholism. Honestly, I, I knew that I needed alcohol to be myself. I knew that I couldn't live without alcohol. I knew that, you know, I might as well just be, I might as well just put a bullet in my mouth if I couldn't have alcohol or drugs. So I kind of made a deal with the devil and just said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to commit myself to trying to function as an alcoholic and a drug addict and, and we'll see what happens. But I definitely wasn't planning on making it to 30. Um, you know, when I got diagnosed with, end stage liver disease in 2008, it was, um, there was truly no hope. I mean, it was, you you need six months to get a liver transplant. So you're not going to get one because you're not going to survive six months. Um, I got sent to Bakersfield. I mean, at that time I looked like the sickest sick person you can imagine. I looked like I was 50 and I was, I was 28 years old. I was completely yellow, huge swollen belly. It's called ascites when your, when your liver and kidneys stop functioning, your, your abdominal cavity essentially fills with blood and your skin is yellow. Your eyes are yellow. You know, it's a um, vomiting. You're basically leaking from both ends blood. You know, it was a, it's a catastrophic, um, just overload to the senses. It's going through liver failure is a very, very sick process. I mean, it is, um, it is as low as you can get. And, um, you know, I spent six weeks in the hospital just getting worse. I got addicted to, to Dilaudid and morphine in the hospital. They, they just, 
you know, they have you point at the, at the pain chart back then it was a pain chart. So if there's a smiley face, there's a straight face, there's a frowny face, there's a frowny crying face. And if you point to that frowny crying face and say, you know, that's the pain I'm feeling, um, they'll give you the corresponding amount of pain meds to Mm -hmm. help you feel better. And, you know, that happened within the first three days. As soon as I got out of alcohol withdrawal, which I don't remember, um, I got addicted to those. And it was just one thing after another, after another, you know, and, um, finally I got so close to dying. They, They were trying to send me home on hospice care just to die at home with my family. And, um, we had actually had some people come from Alcoholics Anonymous to the hospital. And so I kind of woke up and at the foot of my bed are these three guys. They're like dressed pretty nicely. And I'm thinking, who the hell are these guys? And they were sent from central office and they were there to tell me that one of the guys that was with them had gotten through liver failure in prison. And here he was standing in front of me. He was a little bit older than me, but he was alive and he'd gotten, you know, I'm in a state of the art hospital. This guy did it in prison, you know? Mm. So that was our first little bit of hope that really my dad grabbed onto. And, and within not too long after that, we basically pulled all the tubes off of me and left that hospital against doctor's orders. We had to sign all the paperwork and jetted down to Cedar Sinai because that's where I was born. And, and they had a transplant program there. And if I could somehow get into the transplant program, hopefully through the emergency room, that was the only chance I had at life. So that's what we did. You know, we sped down to the hospital and I went through the emergency room, got admitted. Um, I had a meeting with Dr. Tram Tran, who's the head of transplant at Cedars, um, which I'm not sure if I said this, but that's where I was born. And, um, and the rest is kind of history. You know, she admitted me to Cedar sinai took me off all of my medication, had to go through opiate withdrawal, all of those things. And, and that was really the, the beginning of the rest of my life. Um, holding on to that little bit of hope that, that she had, that I would survive. Um, and by the grace of dog, by the grace of God, I did survive. And not only did I survive, I still have my liver. I have stage three fibrosis, which is far less than uh, stage four cirrhosis of the liver. Um, it was previously believed that cirrhosis of the liver is incurable. It's not something that can reverse. It's, it's scarring of, of the liver. Just like if you had a scar on your hand, that scar isn't going to heal all the way because it's scar tissue. It's the same philosophy with, with cirrhosis, but uh, they've now learned that if you're young enough and if you if you treat your body with enough kindness that you can reverse cirrhosis, 0.05% of cirrhosis patients have that capability, uh, and that's what happened to me. So um, I, uh, I'm standing here before you still with my same old kind of blackish brown liver and um, just trying to take one step at a time and, and learn as I go and get better as I go. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much the story. When it comes to the dogs, you know, it, it all began with me getting home from the hospital and and becoming suicidal. You know, I had never lived without alcohol or drugs in my entire life, so I didn't know how to face the day, and it was just a, a really really difficult situation. And um, you know, it was one one night or one morning. It was probably two o'clock in the morning, and I had gone to the bathroom in the bed. Um, Number two, for all your listeners, in case there's any confusion, I shit the bed. Um, you know, I, I had no control over my bowels. And then I was taking this medicine for liver failure that that caused you to lose your bowels. And um, you can imagine the scenario. I didn't want to wake up my dad again to have to clean me off. And, uh, you know, it was as low as you can get. You know, you shit yourself. I was completely naked. I'm trying to clean myself up, but I can't really stand. And I walked into the bathroom and I just looked at myself and you know, I was 145 pounds. I'm 180 pounds now. Uh, it's completely yellow. Um, and just death in my eyes, absolute death in my eyes. I didn't recognize who I was looking at. 
And when you look in your own eyes and you don't recognize yourself, um, that's a really terrible experience because uh, up until that point, I felt like I could always tell who I was, you know, and, and I'd really lost myself. And, um, you know, I just started crying and just really weeping. You know, how did I get here? Um, why am I here? What am I doing here? I need to kind of just end the pain. Uh, and that's when I, I was just so focused on suicide as a way out because I didn't know how to get better. You know, I didn't know how to put one foot in front of the other and try to live for the day, you know. And I look behind me, you know, in this most vulnerable moment. And, um, you know, again, I'm just sobbing. And my three dogs are kind of sitting behind me, all looking up at me like everything's completely normal. <laughs> just wagging their tails, um, looking at this very skinny, very sick yellow person looking at me like I'm the sexiest man alive, like I can do no wrong, like I, I've, I'm God's gift to the planet. And uh, it was a very emotional experience. You know, we kind of just sat there on the floor and let my dogs love on me and um, made a commitment to to try and face the day, you know. So the next day we, we journaled. I started to journal and just write about my feelings so I could get them out of my soul. And, and we just started to walk, um, just started to take my dogs out you know, out on the hills and, and just walk, try to put literally and figuratively one foot in front of the other and try to find the will to live, you know? And, um, we did, you know, that was kind of the beginning of Marley's months. And I'd been working in animal welfare for four years before that, but just as a volunteer and, um, started bringing dogs into my home, started bringing, going to the shelter and dog after dog after dog. And the more dogs I rehabilitated, the better I got. And that happened every day more dogs, started to get some volunteers, started to work with the Humane Society. One thing led to another, and, and we formed Marley's Mutts um, because the whole community kind of saw me get better. You know, I was this very sick person that was very visible in my pretty small community, and I was putting up flyers all over the place at Starbucks and the vet hospital and the library. And anywhere I could put dog posters, this is pre-social media. Uh, and the, my, my community really got behind me, and they wanted to help support what I was doing, so I quickly started to have volunteers and, and, and then we filed for, you know, we organized as a business and, and kind of the rest is history. It's been uh, 11 years now that we've, we've had Marley's Mutts. It will be 11 years in May. And, um, it's been a crazy ride, man. It's absolutely bananas ride that I couldn't be more grateful for. Um, but the struggle is real, man. You know, the struggle is absolutely real. And, and one thing I, I hope we could kind of unpack is, is getting lost in, service because yes. one of the things I'm struggling with now is I, my entire identity has come from serving people and I've lost, I've lost the ability to serve myself. Mm. Um, I don't want to say that I've lost it, but I've forgotten how. So, so much of my worth, so much of what I face every day in terms of my lack of love for myself is, is, um, it's, it's, I build myself up through service. You know, that's where all my worth comes from is, is serving other people. And, and, um, because I don't, for whatever reason, I don't feel as though I have that inherent, innate, you know, worthiness. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people that struggle with depression and uh, can relate to that. But that's been the challenge lately, you know, for sure, is not is trying to find my identity and relocate myself amongst the service, you know, because you can really lose yourself. You know, I'm I'm really glad. First of all, there's there's just so much. I had chills several times in, in the conversation because there's several different things that were going on. And then also what you just said is very, very true. Um I think that people don't often understand, especially even as, you know, like your, what you've done has become fairly known and has become fairly popular. And online, you've got 
significant reach. And people on the outside world, they see like, ah, oh, success. And they don't understand that like, oh, and you know, and he's so serving to the people and, and he is. And, and, I, and, and I, by the way, and I, I have gone through this. It wasn't until about a year ago, year and a half ago, where I'm like, if my identity is only in service to others, what am I doing for myself? And it's, it's a, you know, it's a weird conversation because obviously we're here to serve. We, we must serve others. It's part of, in, in any business that we do or any in personal life, like it's, it's part of who, you know, who we are and what we'll leave behind. Right. But um, we also need to be healthy and loving and kind to ourselves just the same and, and not guilt ourselves and, you know, have a better relationship with ourselves and be like, no, you know, I, I, I can't currently give because I am on sabbatical for, <laughs> for a few weeks yeah. to like to replenish and to, you know, or to like do something that is, that reinvigorates me because we, as an individual, we also have to constantly reinvent, reinvigorate, recreate, redefine all these things in ourselves to be able to push new boundaries ex- in the external world. So we have to come first at, at different points and yeah, learn, totally. right? You know what I mean? And, and the, and the other thing, you know, I, I, what I really, really, I, I respect you beyond, there are people I just don't, they may not understand, the, the listeners may not understand, but you literally, literally, all you had left was, I can literally just put one foot in front of the other and mm-hmm. just keep trying from there. Like going from deathbed to, you know, um, to... Uh, healthier living, you know, a hundred percent, man, a hundred percent. I mean, it was as, it was as destitute as, as you can get, you know, I was, I was obsessing about suicide. You know, when I got back from the hospital and and went through withdrawal, you know, going through opiate withdrawal was worse than alcohol withdrawal. I mean, it was, I had my dogs, if I didn't have all my dogs around me in bed, when I went through that experience, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I would have made it out alive, you know, so, you know, so overwhelmed. Um, and I, and I, it's, it's hard to explain those who, who have struggled with suicidal thoughts will realize that it's just, you just try to find a way out. You know, for me, it was, it was not that life was, was impossible to live. It was just being in those moments was, was unthinkable. The, the, the level of, of, you know, every last ounce of happiness or anything that resembled, um, happiness had been sucked out of me. And I was, mm-hmm. my brain was just telling me, this is too much. This is too much. You have to, you have to go, you have to go. You know, you, you have to leave. You, you can't, you're a burden to your family. You're a burden to yourself. This level of pain isn't normal. You have to get out of here. And so, um, just not, I mean, that was literally where I put all my mental energy and was dreaming about walking into the, you know, dare to be great situations first. That's where I went to first. I was like, I'm too ashamed to kill myself. So what if I was, I would ask God for like, um, uh, you know, me, the, the ability to, to save a kid crossing the street who was about to get hit by a bus or a dog or, or thwart a bank robbery where I get shot or something, you know, so my family didn't have to live with the humiliation of me killing myself. But when you're in that place, that's what you obsess about. That's what you think about is just a way out. And, um, you know, being trapped in between my own ears and in my brain is such a dangerous neighborhood to be walking around in. You know, back then it was just, if I didn't have service, if I didn't have my, if I didn't have something to put my energy into other than obsessing about my, my mental and spiritual state, I would have for sure, I would for sure not be here. Well, you know, 100%. See that right there, that, but that is something to put your energy into. And at any stage of life, any stage, whether our business or our personal life, when we find where we can put, displace that energy into something, you know, to occupy 
the 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 noise that's where we actually end up ultimately finding our bliss we end up discovering what we're capable of who we are or bits and pieces of who we are and who we're we're becoming and i think that that's that i also wanted to bring light to that because you you literally you're like i i that you said you dove right into all of the 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 intensity of you know uh, of of service with the dogs and putting up flyers and the community started back like when there there's that movement life starts to kind of like bloom a little bit and i think that more often than not and i i preach to people all the time i'm like we don't all have the answers because people come to me for answers that they go to other people for answers i'm like nobody really has the answers the answers are when you move and you you start to do things life reveals itself to you as well as the answers you're looking for and uh more or less sometimes we're not looking for them <laughs> a lot of times we're not looking for them and they're like oh shit you know i gotta i gotta rethink some things but but either way you did that and whether you do that in service to others or for yourself that's where the answers come from and you know and, and it's it's amazing what you've done with 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 marley's mutts i mean like what you know how how did that how did you go from Marley's Mutts and then you, you the the positive change because, you know, and and by the way, I remember before previously you told stories about like you know your hike. <laughs> I like the yeah. hike that you went on. If you want to talk about like what happened with what you learned about on the hike and, um, uh, you mean when I when I met when? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So so one of the things that happens when you surrender, like I, I think, what happened is I surrendered. I finally just gave up and said, all right, you know, answers are going to come from me if I can just check myself out, put one foot in front of the other. And, and so that, that, that first day where I tried to re-engage with life, um, we went out, it was sunrise, you know, I was very, very ill, but I, you know, I could, couldn't barely walk and it was freezing cold. And when you're in liver failure, you have to layer, you get really, really cold. It's a by, it's a byproduct of liver failure. So I'm walking with three of my dogs. It's very early. And I see this shadow with the sun rising behind him, this long shadow. I'm like, what the hell is that? A bear, you know? And it gets closer to me. I realize it's a it's a little old man with a parka on. He's by himself. We're in bear country. There's mountain lions. It's not exactly safe to be walking around at dusk or dawn unless you have some protection. You know, I had dogs, and he comes up to me, and I'm so used to that point where people are just astonished to look at me. You know, the immediate reaction is always, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, what's going on with you? Are you going to be okay? And it was just a constant sympathy, all sympathy, 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 which is the last thing I needed. I had sympathy. Sympathy is what kept me a drug addict and an alcoholic for so long because I could count on guilting people with sympathy into sympathy and, and giving me what I needed. Uh, so I'm, I walk up to this guy and he doesn't say anything about the way I look. He just wants to ask questions about my dogs. And again, he's little, like 80 year old man. And we get to talking and he tells me his name is Wendell that everyone calls him when I'm like right there. I'm like, your name is when this is some sort of out of a book experience. You know, this is we're in the nowhere in the mountains. This guy's walking by himself. Is he even real? I'm like, was he sent by God or is, is this a figment of my imagina imagination? <laughs> or is he a real person? And, uh, and he proceeds to tell me that he'd been taking care of his wife who had terminal cancer for the last three years. And that she had just passed away, and this is the first time he had done that walk in 25 years without his wife. You know, so here I am feeling as sorry for myself as I can possibly feel. It's leading me into a just a really shit situation of like patheticness piled on top of apathy and, and sympathy and the rest of it. And you know, he he had no quit in him. He didn't for one second feel sorry for himself, and he 
lost his wife and he was still going to get out, get out there on the road and, and do what he needed to do for himself. And so we started doing that walk together just about every morning. And I got to learn a, a lot about him and he ended up selling his house, buying an RV. This is an 80 year old man, sold his house, bought an RV and traveled the country selling, um, senior vitamins at old people homes. In the process of that, he found a new wife, married her, and then he passed away a couple of years ago. But what a life! Like what a guy! You know what? A, what a human being to be delivered to me in my in my worst moment. You know, uh, you know, I'll just never forget that. It was very, very, very powerful. These God shots that happen, these people that are revealed to you, these incredible yes. situations where you just go, "Oh my God, where did this come from?" You know, it it it's not coincidence. It is it is kind of the universe pulling strings for you that you can't pull for yourself. Right, and you know, and it's it's. What happens more often than not is most people – that's happening all the time, but it's harder to see if people are constantly kind of in the, the everyday struggle or the mundane or whatever and they haven't surrendered or or they're not practicing it on a daily – like now that we're in parts of our life where we're practicing that daily, so boom, a sign like that happens. I'm like, yes, thank you. I was looking for you, not you per se, but I knew you would find me, <laughs> you know, the universe uh-huh. delivered. But but when we're not in that vibration, that frequency, um, they happen more often than not when we're when we've surrendered. And it's you're right. I, I don't believe in coincidences. It's like, no, that was delivered to you for perfect divine timing of like, huh, you know, and the fact that here's here's an individual who's like. I'm not judging you. Like I, I, I have my own life that I've, I'm, I'm navigating through, and here are my lessons that I can share. You know what I mean? And yeah. it, and, it, and yeah. it's funny how it kind of pulls you up out of like, oh shit, everybody's got something, um, and I'm not, you know, being enabled by like, oh poor guy. It's like to you, it's more like, oh wow, like other people go through some crazy things too. Like here's a man who just lost his wife. That was like his, you know, best friend and he's honoring mm-hmm. her and doing all this stuff. You know, it, it just, when that perspective hits, it yeah, really exactly. hits, right? You just, yeah, totally. it, you know. And it really got me into allowing fellowship in my life. I was so um, ashamed of, of how I looked and the person I was. I still had this vanity because I think uh, being like semi handsome was, was one of the last things that I could use to my benefit. And when I got sick, I, mean, I looked like a dead person. You know, I had, you know, I was, I, I had regressed so poorly that I just didn't want to be in public. I didn't want people to look at me. I just felt so ashamed on so many levels because it was my alcoholism being worn on the outside. You know, pr- prior to that, I could hide it. But at this point, it's just every person who sees you knows what's going on. You are a sick puppy, you know. Yeah. But uh, interacting with Wen and, and my dad, most importantly, you know, my, my dad was really the person who gave me the confidence. Like he would always poke his head in my bedroom and go, you're getting better, son. And I'd be <laughs> like, fuck off, you know, slam the door. You don't know what you're talking about, you know, just furious because when you don't, when you're stuck in that space, you don't feel like you're getting better. You just, and you can't sleep. It's just that constant narrative, that broken record of self-loathing that just goes and goes and goes. But once I connected to a fellowship, you know, once I, I really got to connect with people over what I was feeling, people with similar situations, similar afflictions, you know, drug addicts and alcoholics. Oh, God, was that just, you know, really, really needed for all those people out there who might be listening to this thinking you're tragically unique or no one else is like you or you're experiencing a type of depression or, or insomnia or anxiety or nervousness that other people don't experience. You are incorrect millions of people experience what you feel and you're not alone. And I think that was something for me that was, I thought I was broken. 
you know, and even when I first started going to meetings, uh, you know, I, I drank again a month after I got out of the hospital. I mean, my dad left for 48 hours. He went to the capital of Brazil, Brasilia, you know, as quick, he didn't even stay a night. Like he, he knew how fragile I was at the time, left for 48 hours, came back and I had drank. I don't even remember. I went to the store, found the backup set of keys to the truck. They sold alcohol to me for some reason. And I, I blacked out. I don't remember how I got, but I woke up, you know, surrounded by bottles of, of wine and a box of wine and thinking to myself, how, how on earth did I do this? You know? And so I, I thought they were going to kick me out of, of, of AA. I honestly didn't know how it worked. And I thought, Oh my God, all these people are pulling for me. And, and I've now got friends and these people want me to, to heal. And, and I've just done the unthinkable and gone ahead and drank. So I, it took me a month to be honest with them. And then finally, when I, when I was honest, uh, the whole group basically burst into laughter and they're like, man, you know, we drink, that's what alcoholics do. You know, you can't get kicked out of alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're going to be just fine. And, and it was, man, it was like, I was given the permission to be myself, which, yep. you know, was kind of a, a, I was kind of a fuck up, you know, and, uh, just being able to feel like I wasn't some sort of, of crazy, insane monster, uh, you know, incapable of, of recovery, you know, really, really helped me. Most people don't realize how liberating the truth really is um, because it's funny how we're always worried about telling people like, you know, in that situation, you're worried about telling them like, oh, I'm going to let them down. I'm going to this, I'm going to that. In our heads, we can make the biggest deal out of it. And then all of a sudden you tell the truth and everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, oh, that happened to me. Oh, that this. And then you're like, oh, mm -hmm. wow. Like, how, you know, it's truth. The truth shall set you free kind of, you know, without getting all yeah. biblical. But it's very, you know, it's it's very um, it. it, it we worry more, I want to say, we, I mean, like the general people at large, like worry more about what, you know, the truth may, may hurt or how people may view you or all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, it actually is a very liberating, it's always less than the, the craziness in your head that you've developed uh, of how bad it's going to be. And it's always mm -hmm. going to keep you, keep you clear, you know, to, to navigate the waters. So um, For sure. Yeah. So yeah, the, one of the things that was really interesting about Marley's Mutts and what might apply to a lot of the listeners is, is uh, none of it was planned. It was just, I found something that I could be passionate about yeah. that I felt good about and, and I looked into it, you know, and, and I just kind of let it happen. It was a hundred percent getting out of my own way. I think if I would have designed from the beginning that I was going to start a dog rescue or an animal rescue and then prison programs and reading programs and all the rest of it, it, it just wouldn't have happened. I, I just went with the flow and kind of allowed things to develop organically and just tried to, um, you know, a big part of the success of all of it was just being vulnerable. You know, in those early days, I didn't have a lot of friends and I didn't have, uh, but I had a lot of pain and, um, I learned that sharing that pain and what was going on in my head and in my soul, um, helped get it, you know, from, from, from right out in front of my vision It helped put it in the, in the background instead of the foreground. And, and I saw how many people it was helping, you know, and then it, it started to, I started to have people in liver failure and kidney failure, you know, other transplant patients reach out and I got into, into serving them and sponsoring, you know, transplant patients and trying to help, help them with all the things. You know, I learned a lot of things in liver failure. I learned how to take care of myself. I learned how to, how to exercise properly, how to eat properly, how to combat liver failure from every angle. That was my whole focus, you know, and then that was another thing that I just stumbled into that was so interesting is. I had zero will to live in 2008. Come 2009, when I started working with the dogs, I had an overwhelming will to live. Overwhelming. To the mm -hmm. point where I, I really, 
I, I couldn't imagine not being alive. You know, the, the pendulum had swung completely over to the other side because I had a reason to be here. You know, the dogs depended on me and, and I couldn't, you know, they, they needed me period. And, um, and also I, I had, I owed them for what they'd given me. So it was a very natural, very reciprocal, um, kind of foundation. And, um, you know, I, I almost wish we could be doing this over video chat because I have, <laughs> I have one of the dogs that helped save me, buddy. He's 17 and a half. He's sitting right next to me. I got a tongueless mastiff at my feet and I got a golden retriever from Lebanon, from Beirut, Lebanon on my left. So next time what we do this, we'll have to video chat. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, we will. I'm working on it actually, as we speak. Uh, and then we'll t- tell everybody about like what you do with positive change, because I like, we, we've discussed that before too. And that, that's, that's a whole oh, unique. Yeah, there's nothing better than, you know, I I, kind of, I wasn't sure that my abilities would take me beyond working with animals, that my that my abilities would I wasn't sure I had what it took to work with with human beings because I was nervous. I was scared of human beings. You know, I was scared of all people, places and things when I got sober and and, and still very nervous around certain people because of fear of judgment, et cetera. Um, but long, to make a long story short, you know, I've always wanted to to get involved in in prison work, second chances. I am a second, third, fourth, you know, however many dozens of second chance receiver. And it was, I really felt called to try to give second chances to, to human, other human beings. It was very fulfilling to give it to dogs and to other animals, but to, to really give a, a true bona fide second chance to a human being that I could relate to was, was really um, what it was all about. And, um, we tried for a long time to get into the prison system. You know, it was a, a five, five year long odyssey. But, um, what really happened was a buddy of mine, Robbie, he got out of prison after like 13 years and we gave him a dog shadow that he adopted. And it, it just fundamentally changed the whole course of his life. You know, he was one of those guys that was very shy and quiet and, um, had a tough time engaging with people and was, I think, pretty nervous, you know, and I, I think he definitely could have become a, a st- was destined to become a statistic. Uh, but once Shadow got her, her paws on him, you know, everything changed. He, he started to work with us you know, we became very, very close. He was like a brother to me. And, um, we started sharing our testimony and, and he, he really got out there. It, it enabled him to get out of his comfort zone, a hundred percent out of his comfort zone and engage with people and talk to people and honestly be proud of, of who he was. You know, he, he had that same utter shame and I think potentially a lack of ability to love himself and, and shadow the dog just turned it all around. Uh, he ended up getting hired at free to live animal sanctuary. So he, he went to work for an animal sanctuary. Then he came to work for us at the ranch. And then now he owns his own, or he's the president of his own animal rescue called strength of shadow. So seeing how the dogs changed him, it was a no brainer that uh, we got to do this. We got to get inside and, and do this for other people and offer up the same therapy that helped me get through my toughest times, help Robbie find his identity and, and hope and purpose. Uh, we got to do that for other people. And so when we first started out, it was just, let's get dogs into prison. We'll work on the canine good citizen certification. So we'll, we will, um, we'll kind of, uh, just be there for rehabilitation. You know, we didn't plan on it being a a legitimate vocational opportunity. Um, So what it's really morphed into over the last four and a half years is, is we're now in seven state prisons and juvenile facilities. We have over 50 dogs living inside of, of prisons and juvenile halls. And the people, the, the men and girls that are engaged in the program uh, will 1,000% have a legitimate vocation uh, so that once they get out of prison, uh, they can get a job. You know, the fully half of our 
of our released returning citizens. So people who were in our program who are violent offenders, almost all of them serve more than 10 years in prison. Half of them are, are um, employed in the pet services industry. And that's a, just an incredible statistic that half of our guys, which is something like 15 who've gotten out, um, are in this industry, you know, this $70 billion industry that, that fundamentally believes in second chances. So that's why I'm so excited about it. I'm, I'm excited about the rehabilitative prospects of it and, and having, uh, injecting some emotional honesty and some love into a place that critically needs it, some light in a place of utter darkness. But I'm also really excited that it, it helps reduce recidivism and, um, and gives these guys a true hope. You know, there, there are, there are just baffling statistics about the criminal justice system, baffling statistics. I mean, 25% of the world's incarcerated people are incarcerated in the United States. Oof. If I would have told you that, if I would have said 25% of, of the world's incarcerated are in blank country, you would say Russia or China or North Korea, right? Incorrect. It's the United States of America. We incarcerate 2.3 million people a year. You know, 1% of the population is in some phase of a correctional, you know, institution. So it's, it's just nuts, man. And, and we spend $180 billion a year on criminal justice just to lock people up. That, that's more than the gross domestic product of like four Central American countries combined. Think about that. Like that's mind boggling how much money just to, just to lock people up and we give them no pathway to redemption or hope. You know, they get out and we basically say, you've got this scarlet letter. You're a felon. You're a violent felon. You might be a two time felon and good luck getting a job. We'll see you back inside, you know, in a year or two. And that's typically what happens. You know, the vast majority of violent offenders end up back in prison within three years. So it's um, it's something that we have to change, man. Ten million kids are directly affected by locked up parents. And if you if you come from a ten million, you know, mm. and we're talk about creating a cycle of, uh, you know, just a, a desperate cycle of depravity. That's what this does. You know, by affecting that many people, we're just ensuring that future generations are going to have the same problem because that's what they see. That's what they learn. That's what they're around. Just so, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just been the, the greatest thing in the world because we're kind of how we talked about in the beginning where we're helping shift what kind of talks shift what masculinity means you know we have this kind of um, corrupt vision of what um, what men are supposed to be and what vulnerability is supposed to be like for men and that it's you know men aren't really supposed to be vulnerable that's that's something that you should be you should keep close to your vest or you might even be ashamed of or you shouldn't let other people see and certainly not in a prison setting you know you show vulnerability which is a, you know the synonym for vulnerability is weakness then you're you're putting a target on your back but um, with the dog program, we've really basically what it's done is just cracked people wide open. You know, people who haven't been who haven't had the opportunity to be emotionally open and vulnerable. It's giving them a safe space to do that and really grow. I mean, not only grow, but like break themselves down and build themselves back up in a in such a productive, incredible way that I've I've just never seen anything like it. I've never seen so many people who would never in a million years have thought of working with dogs or or being dog rescuers or dog trainers, because that's what our inmates are. They're not inmates. They're they're rescuers, dog rescuers and dog trainers. But so many of those guys come from you know, from Compton or Chula Vista or areas where dog rescue and dog training isn't part of the culture. But um, they're getting the skills and they're they're understanding the emotional um, back and forth, the reciprocation that happens there. And it's just incredibly successful. It's something that we should have in, in every correctional facility in America, I mean, without a doubt. Would I there's a lot of reasons I admire um, the process you've built because the system isn't going to help. 
And it's a, I think sometimes it's a very tough conversation for a lot of people, people thinking that the system is going to, either the system is hurting you one way or another. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. You know, it is what it is. Um, I'm not, not knocking it either. <laughs> I'm just saying that the system isn't really designed to help. And what is designed to make this country or any country better or, you know, situations and, and um, circumstances better is the interpersonal growth. Because when a person starts to come to a different understanding of who they are in this world, the possibilities, and they can open up from a place of understanding emotions and have a higher EQ, there's a lot more that's possible. And if one person, then three people, then 30 people, then 100 people do that, the system itself inevitably has to change because you have too many people now doing the inner work that you know, is ultimately shifting the way things are done and eking out, you know, pushing out, which, you know, obviously the system will do what it'll try to do to keep it from doing that. That's, that's a power grab, you know, but at the end of the day, um, I like the fact that you're going into the belly of the beast and saying, look, I want to go right to the heart of, of man and um, have them deal with the emotional items that are really what's tripping them up and helping them rely more on themselves and having a higher EQ and having a, a better understanding of who they are as, in this world is going to help mm-hmm. make the difference one after one after one after another after another after another. And there's a lot of people who may be discouraged like, oh, it's only one person, but one turns into thousands before they oh, even man. know it. And and that does have a ripple effect, just that, you know, patience. <laughs> you know? The, the ripple effect is mind-boggling. I mean, we've graduated more than 500 guys from our program, and many of them have been enrolled round after round after round. Um, but allowing their families to see them on social media. You know, we, we have to redefine culturally um, how we accept returning citizens into our lives. Currently, they are offered no pathway to redemption. It's We slap you know, you're, you're a felon. We slap that identity on you. And we honestly don't expect anything from you, but that. So part of, part of this is just the identity quote unquote inmates are given, they end up fulfilling. You know, our culture has given them an identity. We don't expect much out of them. We, um, we don't have a lot of hope for them. Therefore they don't have a lot of hope for themselves and they're doomed to repeat their same cycle. But if we inject some hope and we inject, you know, just an example, a lot of, a lot of times all these guys needed is an example, like, and, and it's very strange for me to be that person to some of them because these are these are intimidating men that you wouldn't necessarily think would um, would would hold you as a role model. You know, much less to hear that come out of their mouths is it's almost impossible to process because it's it's so flattering. That's probably the, the most flattering thing I've ever heard is is being complimented in there because um, because these guys are going through so much. You know, they're going through so much. Being incarcerated in America is a is a is an experience I don't wish on, on anyone, you know, and, um, I just can't tell you what it's been like to see these guys progress and to see their families believe in them and to see them kind of carve out a new identity. And it gives me a lot of hope for our culture in general, um, that, that we will, we will start to recognize these, these, these entities, these human beings as sources of potential. That That's all I see them as, as sources of as energy and sources of potential. They all have, I don't know, don't much mind their races. It's it's the energy they put forward. Are they loving? Are they kind? Are they um, are they open minded? Are they closed minded? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And man, the the emotional you're talking about EQ. You know, the the emotional intelligence that is developed in there and the emotional exchanges we have are are just as beneficial for me as as they are for them. You know, my family's gone through one of the most difficult times in our lives. You know, trying to be 
you know, essentially canceled out by a, another rescue organization. Um, it was really, really, really tough for us. I mean, we had death threats and threats to our child and welfare checks by the police. I mean, nonstop, you know, just hounded calls to my wife, calls to our family, like nonstop, you know, being being overwhelmed with this and, and feeling totally helpless to do anything and not knowing how how to stand up for ourselves. And, and um, if I didn't have the counsel that I got in prison, you know, just about every time I went, I, I don't know that we would have got through it the way we did. Um, those guys, because they're in the belly of the beast and they have to learn how to maintain some sort of um, humanity while they're in that place, it's very easy for them to give very powerful advice on how you can endure something because they're enduring it every day. Um, and what you're enduring in retrospect isn't really as bad as what they're enduring. And um, I, I I cannot thank some of those guys enough. I mean, and some of these guys are, are serving life without the possibility of parole. They have no reason to want to give to to want to wrap me up, you know, emotionally wrap me up and give me that kind of love and direction and insight. Um, but they do, and and that's like the, you know, that gives me hope and uh, that that everybody is capable of that. Just about everybody is capable of that, unless you're you know fundamentally broken. You know, um, I mean, obviously we don't have to get into the politics or anything, but uh, um, I find it interesting that you're so busy making impact in your lane that someone from another lane is dis- is uh, distracted by your lane. Yeah. That's how I that's how I look at things sometimes. Actually, a lot of times where when when people kind of go on the uh, like the attack mode or whatever and other things for like all of the good things that you're you're doing right now and you know and sometimes you know mm-hmm. uh, other organizations that you know it already shows you especially from your own growth fear is a powerful thing fear can actually yeah, cause you to do very you know I don't know the situations and we're not going to talk about it on here but I'm saying that, that like yeah. but I, I I you and I've had conversations before but it's you know fear is a powerful thing because when people act from fear not out of love they instantly go on the attack they don't and people don't even realize that like because like even if you disagree with what somebody else is doing, so even if they disagreed with what you're doing, they would double down on their own efforts to do it the way that they then see fit to do it. Unless they don't have the vision to do so, then it's I have to divert my energy towards another lane. And I always yeah. and I say and I say that no matter what to everybody in any situation that like people don't often realize. I'm like more often than not, the reason people attack is because they're out of ideas for their own lane. Period. For sure. And it's yeah, and it sucks accurate. for for it sucks for 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 the other person right because you 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 like it's like getting blow by blow by blow in the ring you're like ooh 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 ah, yeah. that hurts my ribs hurt <laughs> like there is this know. odd tendency for people to want to like chant down other people that they that might be envious of and, and like you said react out of a place of fear but man when when we all act it's not difficult to just switch gears and act from a place of love and root people on but I tell you what I mean I get on Instagram and and Facebook and I. I root my people on, man. Yes. Whether it's Ty from Reverse Rescue or Ellen or or all these different people that run other Laura LaBelle from the LaBelle Foundation, all these people that I that I love all around the world that are doing incredible stuff in, in animal rescue and in, in prison work. Man, I cheer them on and, and it feels so much better to cheer them on rather than root against them. But for some people, in order to stay engaged, in order to stay tough, in order to, to I guess, you know, feel like they're giving it the intensity they need to give it, they need to be angry. You know, they need to be mad. And it's not, it's just not conducive to, um, to harmony in any way, shape or form. You know, uh, there's, there's, there's room for all of us and we yes. all deserve to be here. Period. Yeah. yeah. You know, there is 100% room for all of us. We all deserve to be here and, and, uh, none of us are perfect, man. You know, the, the moment that somebody becomes the opposition, you're like, 
now now the there's an energy shift and instead of um the impact uh being twice as much on the world from you know being uh both uh, providing that level of impact um when there's opposition you're like now you know now you're you're slowing that impact down and that's mm -hmm. unfortunate and that's how I, I actually i put ownership right back onto the other people all the time anytime there's any kind of opposition i'm like you're actually slowing progress Oh, 100%. When you could be doubling that's something that's it. really important to talk about it in the in the service world there is this look it's a lot of broken people that end up in, in service a lot of people who are looking to be of service for the same reasons i was to get out of their own head and their own you know general malaise right like this this fog that's laying over them but if if we if we don't work together we're, we're going to we're, ne we're never going to attract the kind of people we want to be in this work and for for you know, we don't get paid a lot. So for us to, to, for you to dedicate your life to service, you know, there's got to be other bonuses or other positive things about it. And, and when we pit, pit ourselves against one another, it, we really, really shoot ourselves in the foot because people see rescue work or, or this, this work and they go, man, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of service work. If people are just going to be going after each other, you know, that's not for me. I'll go make money in the private sector do something that uh, that will fulfill me that way you know i'm, I'm not going to be thrown into that meat grinder and, and that's what we really are seeing that it's pushing people away and, and I, I hope we can get over that for the for the sake of why we're all in this which is to help others you know amen amen brother uh, man uh I, I we could probably go on forever <laughs> so for but sure. uh and we'll probably we're gonna do a round two we got to get through round one of course <laughs> since, since we've tried to sure. do some stuff where where like where can people find out about um you know the marley's muds and positive change where can they get in contact with you online i mean you got all kinds of really good assets too online yeah yeah so if you just search i'm zach scow z-a-c-h-s-k-o-w on instagram and facebook and uh positive change p-a-w-s-i-t-i-v-e uh, changes on Instagram and Facebook as well. And then the umbrella organization, our big organization is Marley's Mutts. So you can find Marley's Mutts at marleysmutts.com or sorry, marleysmutts.org uh, or Marley's Mutts Dog Rescue on, on uh, Facebook and Marley's Mutts on Instagram. And, and we're always plugging away. You know, I'm headed, as soon as I hang up his phone, I'm headed down to Bakersfield to pick up a little dog with a broken jaw. Mm. And um, yeah, just keep moving forward, man. Oh, man, everything you're doing is is amazing, and I and I appreciate it. And I what I would like I'd love to do another episode again to talk about, um, you know, about that space for men having more like because I sometimes feel realize feel like maybe the the world or just in general that may feel like men aren't having more of these open conversations than they are. And I think yeah. it's I think it's important to also accentuate that. You know, you and I have had some uh, several great conversations and. And we believe in that kind of that openness that like, look, you know, vulnerability yeah. is not a weakness. Actually, it's a huge fucking strength. Like it's actually yeah. like, you know, and, and, I, and I preach that often. I mean, I don't want to go on another rant, whatever, but it's like I, I preach it often because I always laugh when people, like, you know, somewhere and I get it in a past generation. I think we did you and I talk about that where like vulnerability was kind of viewed as this like weakness. And it's like, oh, well, you totally. know, but but um, it just got positioned that way when really the reality is like, well, vulnerability is more about being honest and if you're honest you can say oh no actually i do want to do the work but i do need help like actually asking for help to do the work you know that that's thousands of years old there's like that there's that famous um the richest man in babylon the richest man in babylon he's uh very wealthy beyond belief and um he has a son and uh who potentially could leave the wealth too but he's not going to uh another guy like a scribe or an apprentice goes to him and says i want to learn from you and the wealthiest man in babylon says come back tomorrow after you do this this and this and we'll talk. Does everything he asks him to do, comes back the next day. They talk. 
He was surprised by the work he was willing to do. And ultimately, they develop a friendship. He treats him like a second son, leaves his entire wealth to this man and not his son. Why? And his whole thing was, you have the ability to ask, to be vulnerable and open about, hey, I want to learn. I want to do the work. And then that man became the wealthiest man in Babylon. So yeah, it's like, yeah, that's you know, awesome. So, I mean, it's, uh, you, you get where I'm going with it. This is that yeah, idea of. There's something for me that happened. That one of the things that I'd like to paint the picture for the audience is, there are a whole bunch of inmates that I interact with on a regular basis. Some of them are out of prison. Some of them are in prison. Um, these are guys that if you just judge them based on what culture tells us to rate appearance, you go, oof, that's an intimidating looking guy. <laughs> you know, facial tattoos, you know, all the rest of it, right? And and we say, I love you, you know, when we hang up the phone. And we say, I love you in our letters. And it's very uh, – that contrast, you know, getting I love you from people who have served – from from violent offenders who have served a lot of time in prison is, is, is so what I can't tell you how wonderful it is. And, and we send each other videos all the time. Their gratitude for being out and alive is infectious. Um, and we've developed this incredible bond where, where I love you isn't a bad word between men. It's an incredible word between men. And I think, um, and we'll, we'll probably say it to each other, you know, if, when we hang up this phone or, or at, for, at another time and for men to be able to openly share love with each other and to empathize and say, Hey man, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you, brother. I hey, love you. Hey, it's I, a big deal. I say it all the time. I love you, brother. I absolutely love, I love you, brother. You too, I appreciate you. I, I tell, I tell my friends that all the time. And actually I, maybe it's just the circle I've been keeping, but like, we're all like that. We hug each other. Goodbye. Like, Hey, Hey man, I appreciate you. I love you. I'm proud of you. You know, yeah. those things go a really, really long way. You know, I, and I'm, I'm very fortunate like you. I, I had that with my father even before he passed. Like he was very, um, you know, uh, supportive of me and like, I believe in you. I'm proud of you. I love you, you know, yeah. um, and thank God. And I get it. Not everybody gets that, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to not do it because you didn't get it before that. Now you can break that cycle and, and start doing it. And that's amazing, man. I listen, I, I appreciate you. Uh, and for everybody listening, Make sure to check at Zach Scow on, on Instagram, Marley's Muds, Positive Change. Uh, make sure to go to the websites as well. Um, you can always DM him. Please do so if yeah. you have any questions uh, uh, regarding dogs, regarding um, his journey. If you want to just vent, <laughs> I'm not putting him on the spot. Sure. Of course, you can always, you guys know, you can always reach out to me. But like, and you guys do. I mean, I get, I get some DMs that are, you know, listen, you guys tell me some of the scariest things that are going on in your life, and I get it. And, um, you know, you also tell me about the turnaround, too. So I appreciate all of you reaching out and feeling, like, okay to talk about it because it is. Um, so thank you, Zach. I appreciate your time, man. And, uh, you got it, man. You know, I look forward to, to round two of the conversation. We'll get back to that soon. And uh, for everybody listening, I uh, appreciate you guys um, for allowing us to have these type of conversations. This man's out the door, so we're going we're gonna to jet um, please be sure to check out Marley's Mutts, Positive Change, P-A-W, right? Positive Change. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, thank you for tuning in each week. I'm beyond blessed and grateful uh, for Zach Scow, my amazing guest, for myself, Matt Gosman, for Hustle Separately. We're out.